You're listening to Elk Point Baptist Church. Subscribe to our podcast to hear every sermon and like us on Facebook by searching Elk Point Baptist Church, located in Elk Point, South Dakota. Hey everybody, welcome back to our study of Stop Trying, How to Receive, Not Achieve Your Real Identity. Today we're going to survey chapters 10 and 11. So we're moving now into part three, and the idea of part three is flourishing. So we've lost our constructed, contrived uh, identities, our horizontal identities, our weak, fragile sense of self. We've discovered this thing, this gem uh, called a gospel identity, redemption in Jesus that confers upon me my true self, the me that God had in mind in eternity past when he conceived of his time and space plan and put me on the timeline and put you on the timeline. Who did he have in mind? And the idea that we can construct our identity, we've seen that is just completely fraudulent and completely unfulfilling. But the idea that we have one given by our creator that was lost to sin, but because of the work of Jesus, it has been reclaimed and can be received from my creator. I can be redeemed back into a relationship with him and I can walk forward in, uh, in that new relationship. Now, what does that mean? And here's what we're going to do in part three. And this is fascinating to me. This is what really drove the heart of this book. What happened to the followers of Jesus after his resurrection? Now, prior to his resurrection, they had their own scripts in mind. They really believed who he was, but they didn't really get it. They didn't understand all the eternal cosmic plan of redemption that God was unfolding, they had small ideas, Jewish nationalism, they, they, a, a geopolitical state, a revival of Jewish supremacy, really, and Jesus was going to be their king, and they were going to rule with him. It was a very uh, constricted idea, but God had a much bigger, much more eternal, much more generous and lavish plan of love and redemptive compassion that was going to be unfolded. And they didn't get it until after the resurrection. Now, after the resurrection, really their dream has been smashed, desolate, but it's been resurrected in a totally new form. They're not getting an earthly kingdom anytime soon. They're not getting an earthly king. In fact, they've gone from, uh, from outcast Jewish peasants to now wanted and really death warrants out for, for their, with their names on them, uh, assassination plots against them. Their world has become more dangerous, more risky, more vulnerable, but they are completely different people. They're operating on a completely different economy and with a completely uh, different sense of who they are based on who Jesus is. So this is what we're going to see these next several chapters how they move from fear to flourishing. I mean, they explode onto the scene with courage uh, like, like ninjas. I mean, they have gone from being cowering, fearful, uh, competitive, comparative, petty little people to being audacious in faith and, and outrageously united. It, it, those that were competitive before, now they're, now they're cohesive in unity and and they love each other, and they work together, and they take massive risks, and it, they're just not the same people, and they're flourishing in a completely different sense. And here's the beautiful thing. They didn't have to work 
at this new transformational self. It just arose within them once they realized, once it dawned on them what Jesus had done and who that made them because of who he really was. So I don't want to get ahead of the teacher and of the material, but I think the journey ahead is going to be very exciting for you. So today uh, we're going to focus on fear. Um, and let me see what else I, uh, is in this chapter. So chapter 10 is hardship, suffering. How does a gospel identity change our view of hardship? And then chapter 11, how does a gospel identity change our view of fear and, and how does it resolve fear? So happy studying today. Ask a lot of questions, dig deep and let God teach you. Thanks for reading. Thanks for studying. Thanks for taking the journey with me. Good morning. Today, uh, we're going to focus primarily on how a gospel identity reshapes hardship. Uh, I think for the time we have, we're going to focus on fear more next week. But before we get too far into the lesson, I'd like to share a story uh, from Kerry Schmidt uh, about a time when he was sitting at the beach. He was contemplating life, contemplating identity, the difference between the weakness of horizontal identities and the strength of a gospel identity, and just kind of relaxing, enjoying the beach, the ocean waves, eating a bag of pretzels. Wasn't long before a lone seagull lands right next to him, squawking at him, feed me. He just minding his own business, the seagulls bothering him. Another one comes, a second, a third. He's like, okay, I'll play with them. Throws out single pretzel. They all pounce. Only one gets it. He hops off, enjoys his prize. Well, of course, now that he's thrown one, 20 more join in. There's a whole crowd of seagulls. And he keeps messing with them, waiting, waiting to throw them out. Pretends to throw one, throws them in different places where they're not standing. The birds get frustrated. They start hissing at one another. Jealous whenever they lose the competition, for a snack. But eventually, one by one, they lose interest in the distraction of pretzels and return to just being seagulls, hanging out on the beach, content, enjoying the waves. And it's funny, they got distracted by this bag of pretzels when God has provided them thousands of soft, fresh sand crabs for them to enjoy on the shoreline. There's a whole buffet over here and they're distracted by a lone snack over here. When they face a stranger, a distraction, they descend into scarcity and struggle, forgetting all about the buffet of provision that's waiting for them right there. And I tell you the story because their orientation determined their experience. One crackling snack bag drew them from abundance into frustration thrown into a struggle between who they were made to be and who a stranger on the outside circumstance distracted them into being. So now let's get a bird's eye view of ourselves. Like a distracted seagull, we are harassed and drawn from our God-given identity into our fragile selves. Posturing, pettiness, and worry versus love, peace, and joy. 
One is hopelessly enslaved to drama and emotion, and the other wonderfully free and grounded in truth. When basking in Jesus' gospel provision, we are free to soar and feast in his abundant love. Distracted by false identity narratives, we are drawn back into the fight over a pretzel. Every day presents the same choice, and every day offers the same freedom. But breaking free is not instinctive at first. It's a patient, it's a growing journey. And it's costly, but it's worth it. It's a daily decision to face upward, face outward, and move forward. As the psalmist wrote in Psalm chapter 5, verse 3, My voice shalt thou hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee, and will look up. Like those seagulls, Peter and John hissed at each other. Their fragile selves were highly competitive and highly comparative. Their eyes often aimed horizontally at each other in tense, sometimes uncomfortable ways. John, nicknamed one of the Sons of Thunder, repeatedly rehearsed and reminded Peter of his failures. And Peter continually compared himself to John. Let's look at an interaction between these two in John chapter 21, verses 18 through 21. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, this is Jesus speaking, when thou wast young, thou girdest thyself, and walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee, and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. This spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, Follow me. Jesus was prophesying about how Peter would one day die for the Lord. He would be crucified. Verse 20, Then Peter, turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved following, which also leaned on his breast at supper, this was John, and said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? Peter, seeing him, saith to Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? When Jesus prophesied Peter's martyrdom, his response was to point to John and say, well, what about this guy? Like, like if I have to die, shouldn't, shouldn't he have to die too, Lord? They squawked over fragments of fake identity, such as, hey, who's going to be more prominent? Who's going to have more authority and value in the coming kingdom? Or who has to die first? But Jesus has a way of clearing and lifting, reorienting our vision. In Mark 8, verse 25, he did to a blind man what he desires to do to us. After that, he put his eyes again, put his hands again upon his eyes and made him look up. And he was restored and saw every man clearly. How I long to see everything clearly in the light of who Jesus is and who he says I am. More so, I long to face upward in my new, in my gospel identity, rather than being drawn into frivolous pretzel fights. That drama is merely a mind game. And when I leave it, I never miss it. For 40 days, Jesus stayed after his resurrection. Forty 
redefining days. Metaphors fail here. This wasn't a light bulb coming on in the heads of Jesus' followers. It was a billion light bulbs. It was an awakening, a radical transformation of the minds of Jesus' friends. I'm curious about these days. I think if in heaven there's a big video screen, I want to grab about a month's worth of popcorn with way too much butter, sit back and just watch what were those days like? Living and serving with the resurrected Lord. Jesus spoke to them in those days about the kingdom of God in Acts chapter 1, verse 3. To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. This time, when Jesus spoke of the kingdom of God, they really listened. Their filter wasn't, oh, Jesus is going to set his kingdom up on earth. We're going to rule and reign with him. Hey, who's going to have a higher position? Is it me? Is it John? No, it wasn't that. This time it was, this really is God. He died, but he rose again. And he's telling me who I am, what I've been created to do, and where I'm going when this is all over. On the 40th day, as they walked to the Mount of Olives near Bethany, Jesus told them, don't worry about the times or the seasons but focus on giving the gospel to the world. Then he disappeared. His followers stared, eyes wide, jaws dropped, as he just ascended into the clouds, leaving them with final instructions to wait for his spirit to help them. The walk back to Jerusalem was marked with extraordinary joy. It was ironic. Just a little over 40 days prior, the followers were numb with depression, hiding in fear. Peter denied even knowing the Lord. They felt like they'd lost, but now they were celebrating. They were fully embracing the fact that Jesus had already given them the victory. Their plans were completely rewritten. Persecution was surely coming. For not so long ago, the Romans crucified their Lord. But now, the disciples felt invincible to their enemies, immune to worry, and impenetrable to fear. If you ask them how or why this transformation in their lives took place, they'd probably give you a look. Like, you must be kidding. Jesus defied death, and then he just flew away. He's coming back. He's given us kingdom assignments until he does come back. And we already know that we win. And we get to live on purpose until he returns. Peter later wrote that they've been born into a living hope. And that we are given precious promises as partakers of a new divine nature. 1 Peter 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, 
whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Truly, their psyches, their minds, and their character had become new, and it changed not just them, but their relationships. Everybody else looks different through the lens of your own gospel identity. When you're not caught up in traditional identity, living for others, or modern identity, just living for yourself. With a gospel identity, you get to see others the way Jesus sees them. This time, they waited on the Lord happily and peaceably. Every day, the same space that was silent with despair and loss just about six weeks ago was now alive with laughter and celebratory worship. Every day they walked to the temple celebrating their new reality, full of hope and fortified with the new strength that had dawned on them. And please get this, it, it dawned on them. It wasn't dutied or commanded into existence, and it didn't come from a place of just trying harder. And now their love for each other overshadowed the competition. They weren't comparing themselves with one another, seeing who was greater. Hurtful, jealous seagulls became happy, purposeful seagulls, seeing and finally recognizing the abundance God had for them. It was beautifully materialized by God's spirit, uncontrived. It wasn't coerced by religious dictates. It was organically realized by God to everyone's surprise and delight. I think it's funny that everyone was so surprised. They felt like they lost at the crucifixion when in the Old Testament it, it prophesied that Jesus would rise again. They should know this was the plan all along, that he would die. If they just knew he was going to rise again in three days, like he said he would, well, they wouldn't have been so depressed and down, feel like they lost, like they had to deny their Lord in fear of being associated with him. But I think in our own lives, we know we win. We have the whole of the Bible, yet sometimes we lack the faith, right? The disciples were there. Jesus taught them personally. It wasn't just the Sunday school class once a week. They lived with the Lord, and they didn't have the faith. But I know I think it's in 1 Peter. It says we have a, a more sure word of prophecy than even they had. We have the completed Bible, and God can give us that faith. Colossians 3.15 And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also... You are called in one body, and be ye thankful. I think it's so interesting that it says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Like we've said earlier in the series, our work <clears throat> isn't trying harder. It's entering into God's rest. It's letting. It's just surrendering to the peace of God. So will we be drawn into pretzel stick identities, getting distracted, fighting for our space of security and significance? Will we go on competing and comparing with others over stuff that doesn't even matter? 
Or will we let the grace of gospel identity lift us, turn us upward, face us outward, and push us forward toward God's shoreline of abundance? In the first several chapters of Acts, we find Peter and John serving together. But now they aren't in competition. They're serving together in the power of God. Acts 4, verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled. And they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. They served together in such a way that it was obvious to others they had been with Jesus. Verse 20, it says, For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Being with Jesus, it truly did transform them. They couldn't help but live and share the gospel. Acts 5, verses 17 through 21. Then the high priest rose up, and all they that were with them, which is a sect of the Sadducees, and were filled with indignation, and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. But the angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors and brought them forth and said, Go, stand and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. Verse 21, And when they heard that, they entered into the temple early in the morning and taught. The apostles were thrown in prison. God sends an angel to get them out miraculously. The angel says, go preach in the temple. So they did. They did exactly that. And they did so boldly. In fact, so boldly. (laughs) Look at what one man said about their ministry in verses 38 and 39. And now I say unto you, refrain from these men and let them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, Ye cannot overthrow it, lest haply ye be found even to fight against God. This guy was saying, leave these guys alone. If what they're doing is of themselves, if what they're doing is of man, it won't amount to anything. They've seen that before. They've seen cults rise up, a bunch of people follow a guy, and it kind of fizzles out. But this man saw their ministry and he knew, if this is of God, we can't. there's nothing we can do about it. How are we going to go against the Lord. This is the lavish new life that Jesus' first followers experienced. At every hard place, their new selves grew stronger, deeper, and more confident. They were characterized by an indestructible joy. They were focused. They were purposeful. They irreversibly discovered who they really were. They gladly and generously loved each other. A gospel identity gave them, and it gives us, a remarkable new quality of life in spite of harsh circumstances. They experienced an undying drive and direction, a rock-solid new purpose that remained unshaken in the face of grave threats. They discovered an uncommon confidence and resilience, empowered by the Spirit of God and emboldened by the reality of the resurrection. They operated with an unbreakable joy and optimism, abounding in spite of intimidation, in spite of abuse, 
slander, and threat of death. Luke 21, verses 16 through 19. And ye shall be betrayed, both by parents, and brethren, and kinsfolks, and friends. And some of you shall they cause to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But there shall not an hair of your head perish. In your patience possess ye your souls. The apostles fully embraced Jesus' teaching that all they can really do is kill your body, but in the end, not one hair of your head will be hurt. Like never before, by God's Spirit, they took possession of their souls, knowing their souls can never be lost. They were no longer living for a fragile identity. They were living from a strong one. And God used the hardship they experienced to reveal their new strength. This is the power of facing upward, facing outward in gospel identity. Our view of things changes, which means our minds change. Our perspective changes, and we see all of life differently. The same storms that would destroy a, a balsa wood or a weak life serve to make a real life, even with its prisons, even with its struggles, its hard times. It makes a real life more adventurous, and it makes it more meaningful. Fragile identities are rewritten by gospel grace and all its implications. Our orientation shifts from horizontal to vertical, inward to outward. We stop hissing and stressing over the small bites of life. We face the wide shoreline of God's grace and we feast on his fullness. We rest in being our truest redeemed selves. We are safe in our Savior, flourishing in his good love and peaceable toward others, even those who hurt us. The taunting stranger in the beach chair is rendered powerless and irrelevant. We can walk away from the games and enter the provision of our Redeemer, and nothing can separate us from his love. Romans 8, 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Amen. Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake, we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Our identity in him is sealed permanently and irrevocably. 
Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In whom also ye trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. In whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. When we are saved, when we believe in the gospel, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. That word earnest, it's like the down payment of the inheritance that we have to come. Galatians 4, verses 5 through 7. To redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. This reality of being sons of God through the work of Christ is experientially forceful, as we saw in the lives of Peter and John. It infuses our hearts with a new strength and rearranges our minds in the same way a seagull facing the seashore behaves very differently than one facing a beach chair distracted by mere snacks. Like a hurricane rearranges a landscape. The gospel rearranges our hearts, but in good ways, transforming the way we do life and relationships. In the gospel, your mind moves from a horizontal weakness to a vertical strength. If I walked in with a band-aid on my forehead and you asked, what happened? And I said, well, oh, I was hit by a train you would know something isn't right. Getting hit by a train transforms your life, turns everything upside down, inside out. We have been hit by the train of God's love. It can completely transform and rearrange our lives if we let it. Remember, let the peace of God enter and rule your heart. But often, if we're not careful, we get distracted by the world, get distracted by life, by busyness. And instead of letting the train of God's love hit us, we just let it affect us at the band-aid level when there's so much more for us. In a gospel identity, we live from a place of already flourishing not chasing, flourishing. We give from a place of fullness rather than seek it out. We serve from a place of already having God's favor instead of trying and trying to gain it. A gospel identity doesn't demand that we make ourselves new, that we try harder and then try to live up to some great standard. It declares us new already and empowers us to live from newness in authentic ways. Jesus gives us a new mind and a new psyche that doesn't try to be new. It simply is. It's not a new burden to work at. It's not a checklist 
that you got to look at every day. It's a new reality that just shows up. It can be cultivated. We die daily. His mercies are new every morning. We can't coerce it. We can't force it. It simply takes looking upward and outward. Change your orientation and put on gospel lenses. In every circumstance, ask God, how does the gospel enable me to view and respond to this situation? Hebrews teaches us in chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. If you're getting weary, if you're tired of trying, look to Jesus. Consider that he's been through it all. He endured the cross. It says he despised the shame. He wasn't immune to the pain and the suffering just because he was God. And he knows what we go through. The world gets loud. We live in a distracting and a distracted world. But remember in the Old Testament when Elijah was running from his life. 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 9 through 12. And he came thither unto a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenants, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go forth, and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains, and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. The windstorm was so strong, it was tearing apart a mountain. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. The struggles, the distractions can be loud in our life. It is the easy thing to listen to. They can be big, but sometimes we just need to get quiet. We need to, like it says in, in Psalm 46.10, we just need to be still and know that he is God. Be still. Throughout all the distraction, just listen to that still, small voice. 
I'll end with one last story. One of my jobs at the farm was to help with applying manure. Amen. Amen. <laughs> there are these ponds called lagoons with millions and millions of gallons of smelly manure. You get used to it, but boy, it does stink for a while. And we'd use pumps to get it out of these lagoons and apply it to a fields, pump it out to a tractor that's dragging around this great big hose. And you had to be careful because you're dragging this hose behind you, and if you're not turning through the field right, you might tie it in a knot and break it. Or you might drive over it, poke a hole in it, and got to fix it. And unfortunately, when that happens, you have to call Nathan. So sorry, Nathan. Uh, I've been there. You're praying that you don't have a hole in your waterproof boots. You're hoping your gloves don't get a hole in them. It's a mess. Being ankle deep in manure is no fun. Um, and like many of the tasks at the farm, my first couple times doing it, I was nervous. Driving a great big machine, I don't want to spill a bunch of manure, make a mess, and have to help fix it. Uh, but Nathan told me, when you're driving the tractor, if you're worried about pulling that hose in two, or you're not sure if you're doing the right thing, you, you just need a minute, just back up. Just back up, turn the tractor around, buy yourself some time, call Nathan, he'll come, he'll help, he'll guide your way. And hopefully you learn next time not to do the same thing. I tell you this story because when the distractions of life get loud, we need to be still and listen for God's still, small voice. And when life stinks and you don't know what to do, sometimes you just need to back up. Right. Just back up a minute, call out to God, he'll guide your way. That's good. And if you're looking at and distracted by just a bag of pretzels, totally forgetting about the infinite provision God has for you already, look unto Jesus. We're created for an abundant buffet, not for crumbs. We're created for resting in the Lord, not for squawking and fighting. We're created for feasting, not competing. So let's face a new direction and cultivate this gospel identity. God uses failure and struggle to invite us to run into his arms. God uses hardship and suffering to cause us to look to Jesus. what I have for this morning. We have some time for questions.